People afflicted with borderline personality disorder often fall in love quickly and intensely. They place new loves on pedestals, but their pedestals collapse when the slightest disappointments, whether real or imagined, inevitably occur. People in relationship with people who have borderline personality disorder, whether they're lovers, co-workers, or friends, experience emotional whiplash from the frequent changes from idolization to demonization. As a result, many people find difficulty in maintaining meaningful relationships with those who have BPD. That's a quote from Charles Elliott and Laura Smith, their book, Borderline Personality Disorder for Dummies. For those who haven't personally experienced borderline dynamics, it can be really hard to understand. It can be really hard to appreciate what's going on inside the person who has these characteristics. It can be so difficult to enter into that often chaotic, distressed, fragmented world of someone with these internal experiences. And frankly, many relatives and friends of those with borderline dynamics are really afraid of what they would find if they did understand their loved one with BPD deeply. And that's understandable. So many relatives and friends have experienced the emotional whiplash that Elliot and Smith described, but it's not just emotional whiplash. It's also relational whiplash. And so often it just doesn't feel safe to those trying to love or to be close to people with borderline dynamics. It just doesn't feel safe. Today, I invite you on a journey with me to better understand, to better make sense of the intensity and the difficulties of borderline personality dynamics. And there's one word that I will invite you to remember as we explore borderline dynamics in this episode. Just one word. That word is switching. I am Dr. Peter Melinowski, also known as Dr. Peter. I am your host and guide in this Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, and I am so glad to be with you again. I am a clinical psychologist, a trauma therapist, a podcaster, a writer, the co-founder and president of Souls and Hearts at soulsandhearts.com, but most of all, I am a beloved little son of God, a passionate Catholic who wants to help you taste and see the height and depth and breadth and warmth and the light of the love of God, especially God your father and Mary your mother, our spiritual parents, our primary parents. I am here to help you embrace your identity as a beloved little child of God and Mary. That is what this podcast is all about. And to bring that about, to live out our mission at Souls and Hearts, to live out our mission here at Interior Integration for Catholics, I bring you new ways of understanding yourself, fresh conceptualizations informed by the best of human formation resources in psychology, always grounded in the authoritative teachings of the Catholic Church. And this episode is really special because I think for so many of you, it's going to help you understand yourself and it's also going to help you understand others better. And that's so critical if we want to put ourselves in a better position 
to love them. This is episode 127. It's titled Understanding Borderline Personalities Through Internal Family Systems. This one is released on December 4th, 2023, and I'm so glad you are with me so that we can continue our series on borderline dynamics together. This series on borderline dynamics started out with episode 125 titled Borderline Personalities According to the Conventional Secular Experts, and that's where we looked at borderline personality dynamics from a variety of historical and contemporary conventional understandings, focusing on psychodynamic understandings, but including a number of others. And then we moved on to episode 126, Borderline Personalities, Your Questions Answered by Dr. Greg Bataro. Dr. Greg was my guest with a live audience for that one. We had an excellent discussion. I encourage you to check that out if you haven't. This episode, episode 127, we're going to switch gears and we're going to focus on a new and better way of understanding borderline dynamics through the lens of internal family systems. Now, as I said in the lead-in, the key word is switching. Switching. And we're going to start with emotional switching. Going back to Charles Elliott and Laura Smith, they said, quote, people with BPD experience extreme emotional swings. They may feel on top of the world one moment and plunge into deep despair the next. These mood swings are intense, but usually transient, lasting only a few minutes or hours. The emotional flip-flops often occur in response to seemingly trivial triggers. Theodore Milan, in 1996, his book, Disorders of Personality, DSM-4 and Beyond, Second Edition, described the labile mood. That's another fancy word for volatile mood or mood swings. These individuals with these dynamics, they fail to bring their unstable mood levels into accordance with external reality. There's either these market shifts from normality to depression to excitement, or there's these periods of dejection and apathy interspersed with episodes of inappropriate and intense anger, as well as brief spells of anxiety or euphoria. And some quotes from those that have struggled with borderline personality dynamics, BPT can be exhausting. My mind is a constant roller coaster of emotions. When the emotions are happy and exhilarating, it's the best feeling in the world. That is from an article called Borderline Personality Disorder at mind.org.uk. Another one from Kelly Jo Holly, who collected a bunch of quotes in her article, Borderline Personality Quotes. Having borderline feels like eternal hell, never knowing how I am going to feel from one minute to the next, hurting because I hurt those I love. And then a second one from that source. I don't know what living a balanced life feels like. When I'm sad, I don't cry. I pour. When I'm happy, I don't smile. I glow. When I'm angry, I don't yell. I burn. The good thing about feeling in extremes is when I love, I give them wings, but perhaps it isn't such a good thing because they always tend to leave you and you should see me when my heart is broken. I don't grieve, I shatter. Those, that's a sort of sense of the intensity, not just of the emotions, but of the switching of the emotions, of emotions changing rapidly. And it's not just emotional switching. We're not just talking about transient mood states. We're talking about switching in nearly every aspect of internal experience. The sense of identity, thinking, beliefs, assumptions, impulses, desires, agendas, 
object representations, which is how we understand other people, how we represent them inside, our interpersonal style, our worldviews, our view of God, everything inside seems to switch. And that switching can happen very rapidly for those with borderline dynamics. So let's go through these a little bit just to get a feeling, a flavor of what that internal experience is like. So this switching in identity, there's this lack of inner cohesion, a lack of interior integration. Theodore Milan describes this as an uncertain self-image. The person with BPD experiences the confusions of an immature, nebulous, or wavering sense of identity, often with underlying feelings of emptiness. That person seeks to redeem precipitate actions and changing self-presentations with expressions of contrition and self-punitive behaviors. Jerome, Kreisman, and Hal Strauss say that central to the borderline syndrome is a lack of a core sense of identity. When describing themselves, borderlines typically paint a confused or contradictory self-portrait in contrast to other patients who generally have a much clearer sense of who they are. To overcome their indistinct and mostly negative self-image, borderlines, like actors, are constantly searching for good roles, complete characters they can use to fill their identity void. So, so part of the problem with folks that struggle with these borderline characteristics is that they do not know who they are. And in an article by Chris, Christian Moltul and colleagues, they quote this person with BPD saying, when I am really high up, I can feel invincible. No one can defeat me. What I did was fantastic, you know. But when I come down from that high, this thought is suddenly here. How could you think that way about yourself? Then I feel the urge to punish myself for being positive. So there's switches in, in the sense of identity, that word switching. And then there's also cognitive switching, that is switching in thinking. Elliot and Smith say people with BPD also, also think differently than most people do. They tend to see situations and people in all or nothing black and white terms with few shades of gray. As a result, they consider events to be either wonderful or awful, people in their lives to be either angels or devils, and their life status to be either elevated, to be either elevated or hopeless. Theodore Milan called this pattern of switching being cognitively capricious. People with BPD experience rapidly changing, fluctuating, and antithetical perceptions and thoughts concerning passing events, as well as contrasting emotions and conflicting thoughts towards self and others, notably love, rage, and guilt. Vacillating and contradictory reactions are evoked in others by virtue of one's behaviors, creating in turn conflicting and confusing social feedback. Cognitively capricious, that's what Theodore Milan said, that there's a lot of switching going on. And switching in impulses, too, from one person with, with these conditions, but, uh, from Kelly Jo Holly's article, one second, I'm perfectly fine, and the next, it's like a volcano erupts inside me, leaving me miserable. Theodore Milan describes how these folks are expressively spasmodic. They display a desultory energy level with sudden, unexpected, and impulsive outbursts. So this rapid impulsivity, abrupt endogenous shifts in drive state and inhibitory controls. This not only places activation in emotional equilibrium and constant jeopardy, but there's also this potential for engaging in recurrent suicidal or self-mutilating behaviors. 
the impulsivity can be really dangerous. There's also switching in object representations. This is how folks with BPD see others. They see others in complex and antithetical, contradictory ways. In other words, they often have irreconcilable impressions of the same person at the same time. Theodore Milan calls these incompatible objects. Internal representations comprise rudimentary and extemporaneously devised but repetitively aborted learnings resulting in conflicting memories, discordant attitudes, contradictory needs, antithetical emotions, erratic impulses, and clashing strategies for conflict reduction. It's chaotic inside. Jerome Kreisman and Hal Straw say that splitting creates an escape hatch from anxiety. The borderline typically experiences a close friend or relation, call him Joe, as two separate people at different times. One day, she can admire good Joe without reservation, perceiving him as completely good. His negative qualities do not exist. They have been purged and attributed to bad Joe. On other days, she can guiltlessly and totally despise bad Joe and rage at his evil without self-reproach. For now, his positive traits do not exist. He fully deserves the rage. So there are these very, very different, sometimes diametrically opposed understandings of other people that exist in the psyches of folks with borderline dynamics. There's this switching in interpersonal style too. People with borderline personality dynamics are so ambivalent about their interpersonal relationships. There's so much dependence and so much pressing against that dependence. And this goes all the way back. Dr. Thomas Sydenham, a 17th century English physician, said, they love without measure those whom they will soon hate without reason. He's capturing that borderline dynamic that was in a book titled The Whole Works of That Excellent Practical Physician, Dr. Thomas Sydenham, wherein not only the history and cures of acute diseases are treated of from the original Latin by John Pecci. Blaise Aguirre and, G- and, and Gillian Galen said that many people with BPD find that they morph, acting differently depending on whom they are around. Sometimes these people are referred to as social chameleons, very much trying to adapt themselves to the expectations of those around them. Theodore Malone said that borderlines create the vicious circles they fear most. They become angry and drive the relationship to the breaking point, then switch to a posture of helplessness and contrition, beg for reconciliation. If both parties are equally enmeshed, chaos and conflict become the soul of the relationship. Theodore Milan describes those with borderline personality characteristics as, quote, interpersonally paradoxical. He says, although needing attention and affection, these folks are unpredictably contrary, manipulative and volatile, frequently eliciting rejection rather than support, frantically reacting to fears of abandonment and isolation, but often in angry, mercurial and self-damaging ways. They also have this switching in beliefs, assumptions, and worldviews. Elliot and Smith say that exposure to these rapidly shifting experiences leads to unexpected suffering, anger, and agony in those with BPD. Friends and family worry and often fail to understand how their loved ones with BPD perceive themselves in the world. Unstable and unreliable worldviews help explain the chaos exhibited by those with BPD. 
unstable, unreliable worldviews, rapidly shifting, rapidly switching worldviews. Theodore Milan says that these folks have a split organization, inner structures that exist in a sharply segmented and conflictual configuration in which a marked lack of consistency and congruency is seen among elements. Things do not hang together inside with regard to worldview. They don't hold. There's not an integrated understanding. He goes on to say that levels of consciousness often shift and result in rapid movements across boundaries that usually separate contrasting percepts, memories, and affects. This leads to periodic schisms in what limited psychic order and cohesion may otherwise be present, often resulting in transient stress-related psychotic episodes. It can get really, really bad, this, this, this fragmentation inside in terms of worldview. Now, switching, that's our word for all of this that really captures the essence of borderline dynamics. All of this switching, though, it's hard to combine it all into a coherent idea of a, quote, personality, end quote. Because remember, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, it defines personality as composed of, quote, enduring patterns of perceiving, relating to, and thinking about the environment and oneself. The DSM-5, that's the gold standard for diagnosis right now in the mental health world. I don't think it's a very good one, but it's what most people use. And it says that personality has to be composed of these enduring patterns. The Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual captures the essence of a general definition of personality. They say, we define personality as relatively stable ways of thinking, feeling, behaving, and relating to others. And those definitions of, quote, personality, end quote, don't fit very well with all the changing, all the switching, all the instability that those with borderline dynamics present with. The authors of these diagnostic systems are reduced to denying the essence of the stable and enduring pattern of perceiving, thinking, feeling, behaving, and relating to others by arguing that the stable and enduring characteristic of borderline personalities is that they are not stable or enduring. And that, that I have a lot of trouble with. I've said this before. I said this in episode 116. That kind of definition where what is enduring and stable is that everything is not enduring and not stable, that's self-refuting. And I think that's part of the reason why Linnea Butler, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist, refers to borderline personality disorder as a trash can diagnosis. She says, BPD has been called a trash can diagnosis, meaning that it was originally a catch-all for problems that didn't fit well within other diagnoses. It has long been pathologized by the mental health community as something inherent to a person's personality and therefore untreatable. This is not accurate and is harmful to people given the diagnosis and to the people who love them. What breaks my heart is that BPD is maligned and pathologized in reality. It is something that occurs when someone is highly sensitive and has been exposed to an invalidating or abusive environment. The sensitivity that people with BPD feel can also be a gift that allows them to feel love and joy more deeply than others. Now, I gave you the best of the conventional secular approaches to understanding borderline dynamics in episode 125, Borderline Personality According to the Conventional Secular Experts. But let's understand borderline dynamics more clearly from an entirely different paradigm. Let's understand borderline dynamics from an internal family systems perspective, an IFS perspective, where we are not limited 
to the confining construct of a single personality. I argued against this restrictive idea that we have this uniform homogenous personality in episode 116, why a single personality is not enough. Now, this is going to build on episode 71, a new and better way of understanding myself and others. That was that was the introduction that I provided to internal family systems. And so if you don't know very much about internal family systems, it could be really helpful to review episode 71. In that episode, I described 10 of my parts and I describe how they interact in my own system. Episode 73 might also be really helpful to some folks. Is internal family systems really Catholic? I, un- I get into some of the anthropological issues around internal family systems and how internal family systems can be harmonized with Catholicism in that episode, episode 73. This episode will stand on its own, so you don't have to go back and listen to those. I'll give you enough background to be able to understand what we're talking about here. Richard Schwartz, he is the founder of Internal Family Systems. He introduced a synthesis of two paradigms, two paradigms, the plural mind and systems thinking taken inside. So let's take these one at a time. The plural mind. The main point here is that we all contain within our psyches, within our persons, many different parts plus an innermost self. So he's basically saying that a mind that's in conversation with itself denotes a non-unitary mind, a relational mind. We have a relational mind. We can have relationships with ourselves. And this is really, really important to IFS. It's central. The second part of this is systems thinking. Richard Schwartz was a family therapist trained in family systems And he took systems thinking inside the person. Now, according to Wikipedia, a system is a group of interacting or interrelated elements that act according to a set of rules to form a unified whole. A system surrounded and influenced by its environment is described by its boundaries, structure, and purpose and is expressed in its functioning. Okay, so every system has causal boundaries. It's influenced by its context. It is defined by its structure, function, and role, and it's expressed through its relationships with other systems. Let me give you some examples. A basketball team is a system. Right? It's got these interconnected elements, the players on the team. Right? So it's got causal boundaries. The, 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 the relationship among those players, the, the purpose of the system is to play basketball. It's influenced by its context. They're on a basketball court. They're wearing basketball uniforms. They're playing basketball. It's defined by its structure, function, and role. That system comes together when the players show up, the coaches show up, the spectators show up, and its function is to play basketball. And it's expressed through its relations with other systems. So that basketball team, which is a system, is going to play a basketball game with another basketball team, which is another system. It's relating with that other system on the court. A machine shop is a system. It's got causal boundaries. It's influenced by its context. It's defined by its structure, function, and role. A machine shop, they make parts, right? And it's expressed through its relationship with other systems, including the companies that buy the parts from the machine shop. The machine shop not only includes the machinists, but also all the other staff and includes the machines. And an orchestra is a system as well. 
one unity in the orchestra, but there's also multiplicity in the orchestra, the conductor and the musician. So systems and plural mind are the two unique things that Richard Schwartz brought together. Now this innermost self, that is the core of the person, the center of the person. This is who we sense ourselves to be in our best moments when we're recollected. That innermost self is an active, compassionate leader. And it's got these eight qualities, calm, curiosity, compassion, confidence, courage, clarity, connectedness, and creativity. It's not attached to the means of getting things done. It doesn't have an agenda. It is like the conductor of an orchestra leading all the musicians in that orchestra. Then we have these parts. And to illustrate parts today, I want to tell you the story of Tina and Philip. Tina is a 32-year-old single Catholic woman whose presentation fits the description of borderline personality disorder, and she's engaged to Philip. Philip is a 34-year-old Catholic man. He's handsome. He's physically fit. He's a former Division I running back. He's a very successful local TV anchor. He's a regional celebrity. His writing career has already taken off with his first book titled Finding God in Football. His presentation fits the description of overt narcissism, which we covered in episodes 118 to 123 of this podcast. There was a six-episode series on narcissism that I did. His presentation, Philip's presentation, reflects narcissistic dynamics, specifically overt narcissism. And we're going to get to know a lot more about Tina's parts and her system throughout this episode. So what are parts? It's a really important concept within internal family systems. Well, my definition of these pulled together from a variety of different sources is that parts are these separate, independently operating like little personalities within us, each part with its own unique prominent needs, roles in our lives, emotions, body sensations, guiding beliefs and assumptions, typical thoughts, intentions, desires, attitudes, impulses, interpersonal style, and worldview. Each part also has a way of understanding God. You can think of these parts as modes of operating, if that's helpful to you. These parts have different attachment styles, different ways of connecting interpersonally. They're not just emotions. They're not just transitory moods. They're much more complete and full than that. There are these constellations, not only of emotions, but also body sensations and beliefs and assumptions, thoughts, intentions, desires, all of the stuff that goes on inside the psyche. And the other thing is that parts last over time. They exist even when they are not in conscious awareness, even when they're not sensed. Parts can reside in the unconscious, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Even parts that are in the unconscious can exert an influence on the person. Now, parts always have good intentions. They are trying to at least help us get a perceived good, although they could be wrong, and they often are, about what actually is a good for us. Parts generate impulses, trying to influence the will. And your parts are generally trying to meet the primary conditions for secure attachment. Now, these five conditions of secure attachment I adapted from Brown and Elliott's book in 2016, Attachment Disturbances in Adults. I look at these as needs. So when we think about what motivates parts, because we want to get below the surface. We don't want to just have a description of what borderline personality dynamics are. We want to get to why. 
Why do things happen the way they do? And it's really important to know that parts are motivated by these attachment needs, the need for safety, which is my need to feel a sense of safety and protection in a relationship. Recognition, which is my need to feel seen, heard, known, and understood. Reassurance, my need to feel comforted, soothed, and reassured. Delight, my need to feel cherished, treasured, and delighted in by the other. And love, my need to feel that the other has my best interest at heart, holds a position of benevolence and beneficence toward me. And I added a sixth one, a sixth attachment need, belonging, my need to feel included, of being a valued member of a community with an important role. Those are the six primary conditions of secure attachment, safety, recognition, reassurance, delight, love, and belonging. That's what motivates so much behavior of parts on the relational side. But there are also six integrity needs. And I've pulled these together from a variety of sources, including my own experience. And what are those six integrity needs that parts are really concerned about? Number one, survival, my need to exist and survive. Number two, importance, my need to matter in the world, to be significant. Number three, agency, my need for autonomy, to be able to exert influence on others and to make at least a small difference in the world. The fourth one, goodness, my need to be good in my essence, in my person, in the depths of my being, to experience a sense of ontological goodness. Not that just that my actions are functionally useful to others. Fifth one is mission. My need for mission, purpose, a vision to guide my life. And the sixth one, authentic expression. My need to share and communicate with others what feels true and real within me rather than pretend otherwise. So those six integrity needs that parts are really focused on meeting, survival, importance, agency, goodness, mission, and authentic expression. Now, here's the thing. Different parts are focused on getting different needs met. It's not that every part is looking at meeting all 12 of these needs. Sometimes parts are focused on just one or maybe two needs. The other thing is that two parts can be focused on the exact same need, but be in opposition to each other, be polarized with each other because the way they're trying to get that need met is very different. It's contradictory, right? So parts have these needs, but they have a very limited vision. They don't see the whole person. They lack maturity. So if you want to find out more about parts, um, we're going to, again, I can refer you back to episode 71. We're going to cover the three roles that parts have within a person system. Those three roles are exiles, managers, and firefighters. Exiles, managers, and firefighters. Now, the exiles, these are the ones that have been in the breach. These are the ones that have suffered attachment injuries, relational wounds. They are the ones that carry the effects of unresolved interpersonal trauma. They're the ones that have been exploited. They're the ones that have been rejected, betrayed, disappointed, abandoned in external relationships. And they hold the intensity of all that unresolved pain and distress, all the intensity that has been isolated from conscious awareness so that all that intensity doesn't overwhelm the person and destabilize them, make them unable to function in the world. This, this is the gift that exiles give the system is they carry that and contain it and compartmentalize it so it doesn't just spill out and take us over. 
Exiled parts desperately want to be seen and heard. They desperately want to be safe and secure. They want to be comforted and soothed, to be cared for and loved. They have lots of unmet attachment needs, lots of unmet integrity needs. And in the depth of those unmet needs and in the power of their emotions, they're dangerous. They're perceived as dangerous by the other parts because if they take over, it will be super intense. Like the little figures in the character Riley in the Pixar movie Inside Out, taking over the control panel. And the burdens that they carry often include neediness, dependency, shame, you know, not feeling worthy, feeling unloved and unlovable, inadequate, feeling essentially evil or bad, not good enough. Talked a lot about shame in episodes 37 to 49. I did a 13 episode series on shame. So important to understand that and it, that drives so much of borderline personality dynamics. Grief is another one, unresolved loss, fear, terror, and especially abandonment. Abandonment and isolation, so critical for those suffering from borderline dynamics. You can imagine these exiles as prisoners in an internal prison within the self, locked away, being kept in their cells. So I mentioned Tina. Tina, she is our 32-year-old single Catholic woman. She is the one who is engaged to be married to Philip. And she, I'm going to describe two exiles that she has. The first one is the abandoned exile, and the second is her shame bearer. But let's talk about her abandoned exile. This is the part of Tina who experiences intense emotional pain and distress. Her emotional experience is not well differentiated. This, this part of her, this abandoned exile, carries the burdens of abandonment and isolation, feeling victimized, frightened, hopeless, needy, deprived, lost, and sometimes even inhuman. This part is really struggling. Tina's abandoned exile has this diffuse sense of identity, feeling very hollow inside, very empty inside. Sometimes this abandoned part questions Tina's own existence, wondering if Tina even is a person. And this part bears the burden of neglect, the omissions of love by others. And this part also feels rejected and neglected by God. And this was all fueled by Tina's early childhood experiences of emotional and relational neglect in her family. And this abandoned exile is kept in a prison inside of Tina. This little exile Help! Help me! bound and caged inside. And this little exile has needs, needs for recognition. That's an attachment need. This one has a need to feel seen, heard, known, and understood. This one has this need for reassurance, to be comforted, soothed, and reassured. This one has the need for belonging, the need to feel included, of being a valued member of a community. Those are the needs that this little abandoned exile that's in prison so needs. So the second one, the second exile that we're going to discuss within Tina is her shame bearer, her shame bearer exile. And this part of questions whether Tina could ever be loved by anyone, especially any man. This part experiences herself as unloved and unlovable because she is too wounded, too broken, too repulsive, too damaged, too much to handle. This shame bearer carries the weight of relational injuries and attachment wounds more 
of the unattuned acts of commission by others who lacked love in relating with Tina. Tina's shame bearer deeply desires love, affection, nurturance, and healing, but is suppressed by her manager parts. Now, this part was fueled by Tina's early childhood experiences of being mistreated that bordered on emotional abuse. Lots of criticism, yelling, shaming from her parents and from others. This one is really carrying the shame, primarily from acts of commission. The abandoned exile, that one's carrying the burdens of neglect, the acts, the, the acts of omission, the things that were omitted. The shame bearer carries the, 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 the brunt of what was unresolved from acts of commission. And this one is also kept in prison, chained up, trapped, with her needs to be good. She needs to be good. This one has this integrity need for goodness, the need to be good in her essence, in her person, to experience that sense of ontological goodness and not just to be functionally useful to others. This part so desperately needs delight, right? That others cherish her, treasure her, delight in her. And this one also needs love, the need to feel that others have her best interests at heart, that they will be benevolent and beneficent toward her. Those are Tina's exiles. They are imprisoned within her by her managers. The managers, these are the proactive protector parts who are trying to keep you safe from your exiles. Your managers focus on controlling you in your and your environment. They strive, they plan, they take care of things, they judge. Your managers work strategically, they plan ahead. They're trying to get in control of situations to get ahead of the game. They want to minimize the likelihood of you being hurt again. And you can imagine your managers like the prison guards in your internal system, patrolling, ever vigilant, keeping your exiles in their prison cells. Now, Tina's primary manager is this approval seeker, right? This approval seeker who is very focused on gaining approval, on getting recognition from others, attention from others, fitting in. And this one is really trying to keep Tina's deep-seated insecurities from coming to the surface, particularly her shame bearer, but also her abandoned exile. Tina's approval seeker deeply believes that Tina only has value if others recognize her as valuable, and Tina's approval seeker works very hard to avoid rejection so that the abandoned exile does not get activated. The approval seeker readily idealizes men. The dependence this part has on others' opinions often leads Tina to make decisions that are ultimately not in accord with her dignity or her integrity as a person. Tina's approval seeker firmly believes that giving others what they want is the way to keep them in relationship with her so that she will not be overwhelmed with the intensity of abandonment that her abandoned exile carries. And this manager has lots of history of conditional love. This manager has experienced being rewarded for pleasing others. So there's a high emphasis on looking physically beautiful, on looking attractive to men. It's led to some boundary violations in the past working too long of hours at her job as a ballroom dance teacher. This is the primary manager. This approval seeker is the primary manager that runs Tina's day-to-day operations. She's classy. 
She's modest. She's neat. She's flattering of others. That's the way that she operates interpersonally. And this approval seeker has the needs for survival, the need to exist and to survive, an integrity need, the need for recognition, to be seen, heard, known, and understood, and the need for agency, that that this need for autonomy that the Tina can exert influence on others and make a small difference in the world to try to get her needs met. So that's Tina's primary manager, but there's another really important manager that we're going to discuss, and that is Tina's hiding part. This hiding part proactively conceals from Tina and from other people the intensity of her other part's experience, keeping that intensity outside of her conscious awareness so that Tina never gets overwhelmed with shame, sadness, grief, fear, anger, disappointment, or other emotions. The unintended consequence of her hiding part is to make it harder for Tina to know her whole self, especially her whole heart, and it also makes it harder for others to know Tina deeply. This hiding part really believes that so many of Tina's parts would be unacceptable to other people, especially if they were to come out and be intense. So Tina's hiding part is really battening down the hatches, really keeping the prison cells secure for her exiles. This part has these needs for safety, the need to feel a sense of safety and protection in relationship. She believes that really only the approval seeker is a good one to be in relationship with other people. And this hiding part regulates which parts of Tina can be seen or experienced by others. This part's like a wall that is uh, kept between Tina and herself, but also between Tina and other people. So these two managers are like prison guards. They keep the exiles in their prison cells, inside the self. But, but sometimes, in spite of the best efforts of those managers, the exiles make a jailbreak. The exiles escape from their prison cells and they're on the run. And where are they running to? Well, usually the jailbreaking exiles are headed to the innermost self. In their desperation, they want to blend with your innermost self in an effort to be seen, heard, known, and understood so that they can have their needs met. So when your exiles are out and on the loose, having overcome your managers, that's when the third kind of part, the third role that parts have, the firefighters, that's when the firefighters leap into action because it's an emergency situation. The firefighters take up their battle stations. The klaxons are going off. There's no concern for niceties, for propriety, for etiquette, for little details like that. Firefighters take bold and drastic actions to stifle, numb, or distract from the intensity of the exile's experiences. Stifling, numbing, and distracting. The intense neediness and grief are overwhelming us. Emergency actions, evasive maneuvers, there's no concern for consequences. We're in a crisis, and so stifling and numbing, alcohol use, drug use, sleeping, self-harm, dissociation, checking out, escapes into fantasy, all those kinds of things are used by firefighters. And then all the distractions, binge eating, shopping, Excessive working, obsessive thoughts, ruminations, compulsions, overexercising, videos, Netflix binges, video games, pornography, violence, raging, all of that stuff distracts from the intensity of the emotions, the things that are unbearable that are coming up from the exiles because the exiles have broken out of their jail cells. So let's talk about Tina's firefighters. She has three firefighters, a charmer, 
a feisty protector, and a self-punisher. The charmer, let's start with that one. Tina's charmer assumes that all men want sex. And her charmer is really good at being flirtatious. This charmer can team up with the approval seeker sometimes as a last-ditch effort to hold on to relationships, skating the dangerous edges of boundary violations. This charmer distracts from the pain of the abandoned part and the and the shame bearer. This charmer wants a sense of power, this need for agency. That's that integrity need of agency, the need for autonomy, to be able to exert influence on others. It also wants this delight, this attachment need to feel cherished, treasured, delighted in by the other. You can tell this part's active by the wardrobe that this part prefers. The charmer, it likes more alluring, sexy, lower cut necklines, tighter fits that show Tina's curves, bolder colors, lots of red with makeup and jewelry to match. This one, this one dresses Tina to the nines. She looks hot when her charmer is in front. But you know what? This part does not really want sex. It's not about sex for this part. It's about this last-ditch effort to hold on to relationships, this effort to try to maintain the relationships with men. That's what the charmer is focused on. The second one is this feisty protector. This, This part greatly desires Tina not to be mistreated anymore, does not want to be taken advantage of or exploited. This feisty protector wants to set protective limits and boundaries, but here's the problem. Its anger can fuel limit-setting and justice-seeking in such intense ways that it harms her relationships, even ends her relationships with other people. This feisty protector is focused on the preservation of Tina's dignity as a person. This part has a deep sense of justice and injustice. It really has this integrity need of goodness to be ontologically good, for others to see her as good as she is in her personhood, as a beloved little daughter of God. And this part really has this need, this integrity need for authentic expression, to share and communicate with other people what feels true and real, rather than to do all this pretending that the approval seeker does, rather than do all this pretending that other parts do, Rather than hide everything like the hiding part wants to do behind the wall, this part wants to be known. The third one is the self-punisher. This one becomes very irritated or angry with Tina. It's punitive. It's hard. It's unforgiving. Preoccupied with compensation, atonement, reparation, self-sacrifice. This one wants her to be able to preserve relationships. This is the one that comes up when others are angry at her. This is the one that joins with others in their anger at Tina. The anger gets turned inward and this part tells Tina and others that Tina is a terrible person, joining in the criticism. And this part seeking safety, safety and protection in relationship. It, it joins in the criticism that other important people have toward her so that, that they will stay in relationship with her. But it polarizes with the feisty protector who hates that. This, this, this self-punisher wants to be recognized, wants to be, to be seen, heard, known, and understood, and wants to be comforted, soothed, and reassured. It's very focused on repairing relationships that are damaged by the feisty part. All right, so here we have the parts of Tina, seven of them. Two exiles, the abandoned exile, 
and the shame bearer, two managers, the approval seeker and the hiding part, three firefighters, the charmer, the feisty protector, and the self-punisher. That is just a subset of her parts. That might be half of Tina's parts, but those are just the ones I'm going to focus on today so we don't make it too complicated. Now, the benefits of looking at borderline dynamics through an IFS-informed lens. We're going to be looking at parts, the innermost self, and systems. There was an excellent 2013 Psychotherapy Networker article titled Depathologizing the Borderline Client by Richard Schwartz, where he writes, From the IFS perspective, borderline personality disorder symptoms represent the emergence of different parts or subpersonalities of the client. The parts all carry extreme beliefs and emotions, what we call burdens, because of the terrible traumas and betrayals the client suffered as a child. The central task of IFS therapy is to work with these parts in a way that allows the client's undamaged core self to emerge and deep emotional healing to take place. If each part, even the most damaged and negative, is given the chance to reveal the origin of its burdens, it can show itself in its original valuable state before it became so destructive in the client's life. IFS helps us to make better sense of our own experiences, to, in, to be able to understand more clearly what's going on inside, to be able to put it into words, to be able to conceptualize it. That helps us to be better able to love ourselves in an ordered way. And whatever we reject in ourselves, we will reject in another person. Any parts that we reject in ourselves, we're going to reject similar parts, the counterparts, in another person. And so I really believe that the concepts of parts and systems in internal family systems helps us to make better sense of our own experience, helps us to make better sense of other people's experience, which then in turn helps us to be better able to love. That's why I like IFS so much. There are so many advantages to considering ourselves and others through the lens of parts and systems. Understanding what we do and why we do it is made so much easier when we connect with our parts, when we live in this much more integrated way on the natural level. It helps us to understand what's going on in the unconscious, parts that are not seen, heard, known, and understood. It helps us with all the nuances of that activity inside. It helps us to understand and to resolve internal conflicts, the polarizations among parts. It also really helps to to know that when we experience some really problematic impulse or desire or where there's a problematic belief or emotion, that that's just a part of us. Only a part of me believes this. It also helps us with humility to be able to acknowledge what is real within us and what is real within other people. So, this myth of the single homogenous personality, I think will eventually disappear because this idea of parts and systems that IFS provides us, I think it's going to have as great an impact in the 21st century as the unconscious did in the 20th century. So let's understand Tina much more deeply through this IFS informed lens. Let's understand her with compassion and openness. Let's try to understand how Philip might experience her in different moments. Remember, Philip is her fiance. He's a 34-year-old Catholic man, physically fit, handsome, former Division I football player, successful local TV anchor. His writing career has just taken off with his first book. 
And let's review Tina's parts. Remember, she has this abandoned exile and this shame bearer. She has these managers, an approval seeker and a hiding part, and she has these firefighters, the charmer, the feisty protector, and the self-punisher. Now, I'm going to use a model of an octopus to describe Tina's system. Now, when I did this in the episode on IFS, Understanding Narcissism Through IFS, few a few episodes ago, I used a different model. I used this a triangular prism, like a Toblerone box. So this, this, this octopus that we're going to use is to help us visualize Tina's system. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that those people with borderline characteristics are like octopuses. That's, I'm not saying that. I want to be really clear about that. This octopus has six arms. Now, some of my kids would say, well, that's not an octopus. That's a sextopus or something, you know, but this octopus has six arms to represent six of her parts. And the seventh part is her hiding part, which is like a wall, right? So there's a wall, which is the hiding part. There's the octopus. The head of the octopus is Tina's innermost self. And the six arms are the other six parts, the abandoned exile, the shame bearer, the approval seeker, the feisty protector, the self-punisher, and the charmer. Now, I mentioned that this hiding part is like a wall, and it's got one hole in it, just one hole, that is just big enough for one arm of the octopus to go through and to interact with the rest of the world on the other side of the wall. Only one arm of the octopus can fit through the wall and get to the other side. One part of Tina is allowed by the hiding part to interact with the world. And almost always, most of the time, what the hiding part wants is for that one part to be the approval seeker. Right? So you can't see most of Tina. You can only see the parts that the hiding part lets through. If the hiding part gets overwhelmed, you can see other parts too. But generally, when Tina is not destabilized, you're going to see one part that's the approval seeker and the hiding part is going to be keeping the rest of the parts out of conscious awareness in those exiles in their prison cells and the firefighters also contained. So the approval seeker manages really well at the job of being a ballroom dance instructor. Tina, her male students really like to dance with her. Her approval seeker is engaging, warm, gratifying, classy. This approval seeker can give compliments and smiles to these men who are learning to dance in ballroom dance class. Uh, But that's not always the case. Sometimes other parts are prominent. So what I want to do now is I want to roll through these DSM-5 criteria for borderline personality disorder. We went through these heavily in episode 125. And then I want to explain how each criterion can be understood through an IFS lens of parts and systems. So let's review. We're going to start with this criterion that there's a pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships, self-image, and affects or emotions. This is the switching among parts that we've been talking about, the switching that happens emotionally, but also in terms of one's sense of identity, interpersonal relationships, how one understands another person, worldviews, all of that switching we talked about at the beginning of this episode. We're going to see how this plays out as different parts of Tina come to the front during her interaction with Philip. So here's the backstory and the scene. Philip is having a bad day. His editing crew 
lost some footage from a special investigative assignment that he really needed for his anchor job. And he had to very rapidly compensate for that deleted footage, change up the story for the evening news. He was really unhappy about that. And on his date that night with Tina, he was brooding about it, ruminating about it, how, how, how horrible that was. So he was distant, distracted, self-absorbed when interacting with, with Tina. Now, Tina showed up to that date with her hiding part firmly in place, the wall firmly in place, the approval seeker being the only arm of the octopus that was allowed through the hole. That's the part of her that typically works with people if she's not destabilized. That's the part that Philip really likes usually. Really, that part really tries to be gratifying. And that's the part that offers him narcissistic supplies to boost up his his fragile sense of self-worth. But it's not working tonight in that restaurant. Her approval seeker is trying to engage with Philip, but Philip is not having it. Philip remains distant. He remains self-absorbed. He remains disconnected, and it's really getting under Tina's skin. Her approval seeker is failing to be able to connect with Philip. And that shakes up her abandoned part. All of the history of all of the years of all the abandonment by all of the people in her life, all of that that happened is now felt like it's happening again. And the abandoned part grabs the bars of its cage, its prison cell, and begins to yank them back and forth and back and forth. And those bars bend and break. And that part is now out on the loose. The abandoned part the abandoned exile has broken free and the firefighters are now called up. The main one, the first one is the charmer. The, re- the approval seeker withdraws from the hole and the charmer now appears, right? The charmer scoots through the hole. That arm of the octopus gets through the hole first before the abandoned part can get through the hole. And she puts on her best smile. She puts on her bedroom eyes. She reaches out to Philip. She begins to, to, to rub his muscled forearm as it's on the table, as his fist clenches and unclenches, as he's working through his anchor toward his video editing staff. So now you can see there's been a switch. And it wasn't just an emotional switch. It was an entire switch of a part. We went from the approval-seeking part being in front to the charmer being in front. And the charmer is in front because it's desperately trying to distract from the intensity of the abandoned part. It's desperately trying to re-engage Philip. The pervasive pattern of instability in interpersonal relationships. She's just made this shift in interpersonal relationships. She's just had this shift in her self-image because now all of this agitation about being abandoned and not being worthy, right? Because the shame bearers also started to get upset and the intensity of the emotion. She's starting to feel all of this warmth now toward Philip. All of this desire for Philip because 
This is one way that that charmer part knows to engage men. All right, so this is also part of that criterion that the DSM has frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, right? Her abandoned part was getting activated. Help me, I need love. That abandoned part is writhing, right? Headed towards those holes, was really worried. That abandoned part was headed to the hole in the wall, worried that Philip was disengaging, noticing that Philip also eyed a waitress and smiled at her, right? The approval seeker failed, right? The charmer is in the hole doing her best to try to capture Philip's attention. Both her approval seeking manager and her abandoned exiled parts idealize Philip. He's handsome, he's strong, he's attractive, he's larger than life, he's a he's a good catch, as grandma used to say, a great catch. He can't be lost. We cannot lose him. Right? That's what the abandoned part is saying. That's what the approval seeker is saying. That's what the charmer is saying. But that abandoned exile is so activated, it's rumbling around. It's no longer contained in its prison cell. And that part feels so empty, so hollow, so in need of love and affirmation from Philip. Those are the chronic feelings of emptiness. That's that criterion in the DSM-4, that chronic feelings of emptiness carried by that abandoned part. That abandoned part has, is so triggered, it's broken free from its prison cell. And if that abandoned exile gets through the hole in the wall to Philip, that abandoned exile is going to start crying and begging and clinging and getting all sloppy and sobby. And Philip's going to hate that. He's just going to get mad if that happens. And that's why the charmer got through the hole first and is now trying to get his attention through her approach to him. Affective instability due to a marked reactivity of mood, intense episodic dysphoria, irritability, anxiety, usually lasting uh, a few hours or rarely more than a few days, right? That's where we see this shift from the fear of the abandoned part to the warmth that the charmer is feeling toward, toward Philip, which is real, right? This is all... It's all part of engaging him. And you can see that she's got this markedly and persistently unstable self-image or this, this unstable sense of self. You can see the switching going on. And it's in every aspect of her internal experience, her sense of identity, her thinking, her beliefs, her assumptions, her impulses, her desires, the agendas, the object representations, how she understands Philip, the interpersonal style, the worldviews, everything seems to switch and sometimes very rapidly. And now we're going to talk about impulsivity, right? Impulsivity in two areas that are potentially self-damaging. So far, there hasn't been a lot of impulsivity that's been super damaging yet, right? The charmer has come up, is trying to, trying to connect with him. Remember, the firefighters, they take bold, drastic actions to stifle, numb, or distract from the intensity of the exile's experiences. Her charmer part is trying to ward off the intensity of the abandoned part's distress, the overwhelming hunger 
that the abandoned part has to be seen, heard, known, and understood. That's the attachment need. And Tina's charmer firefighter knows that if the abandoned part gets through the wall, he's going to reject her. So now the charmer is considering pushing sexual boundaries and attempt to re-engage Philip. But Philip initially doesn't notice the charmer's efforts to attract him. Philip's protector parts are still trying to cope with his narcissistic wound. He can't believe how stupid Eddie the editor, how stupid that guy is. That guy needs to be fired yesterday. He doesn't have backups. He didn't take care of the footage. You know, and, and Philip... Philip was thinking, I had a real shot at winning the statewide award for the best TV investigative story. And Eddie, that idiot, he lost the footage. He deleted it. How in the world does he not have backups? Right. So it's at this point that Philip notices what's going on at the table. He notices Tina rubbing his arms, giving him that sultry look. Right. And in his own parts, he reacts. He says, what are you doing? Stop touching me. Stop petting me. I'm not your dog. Don't pet me like that. He said it low under his breath, right? But Tina's charmer was just rebuffed, rejected. And now... Tina's shame bearer is even more activated. I'm not loved. He doesn't love me. He doesn't need me. I'm bad. I'm ugly. I'm undesirable. I'm unwanted. I'm unattractive, right? The charmer is defeated. The charmer withdraws, leaving the hole open. All right, so this is another criterion, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. What's happening now is that the shame bearer is headed straight for that open hole to try to get to Philip and to have him save her. That shame bearer idealizes Philip. That shame bearer needs to be rescued. One kind word from him would make things so much better. One kind word from Philip right now would make it all right. So that shame bearer just needs to get to him so that so that he can that he can soothe her, calm her, reassure her. Right? The needs, the attachment needs. But it's well known in Tina's system that when that shame mirror gets loose, it gets all needy and sloppy, gets all sobby. Philip's parts will really reject Tina. They're going to react. His parts are going to react. And those parts are going to shame her shame bearer even more. And it's going to be unbearable. So the klaxons go off. And Tina's feisty firefighter leaps into the breach. Like an arrow from the bow, the feisty firefighter's arm speeds through the hole just ahead of the shame bearer. And it's angry. This firefighter is angry, and now it's all about protecting Tina from being shamed. And she hisses at Philip, how dare you treat me like that? And then the volume starts getting up as the firefighter winds it up, giving Philip a tongue lashing in the restaurant, calling him filthy names, hating on him, right? And there we have that criterion, the DSM-5 criteria of inappropriate, intense anger, difficulty controlling anger, frequent displays of temper, And whereas the charmer firefighter was gently and seductively stroking Philip's arm just a minute ago, now the feisty firefighter claws and gouges his arm with her beautifully manicured nails in rage and rage. All the rejection from all the relationships from all the years, it's now coming out, it's focused on Philip. And this is all incredibly embarrassing for Philip. Philip 
who has already been narcissistically injured early to, earlier today by Eddie, the incompetent video editor, losing the footage. Now he's got Tina making a scene. He says, stop that. Get a hold of yourself. He catches her hand so that she can't gouge him again. Blood's oozing from the scratch. He covers his forearm with a napkin. And at this moment, the feisty firefighter is still angry, struggling in Philip's grip. And another firefighter leaps up and punches a new hole in the wall. Right? Not going to go through the old hole. We're going to make a new hole because the, the hiding part's breaking down. The hiding part can't hold it together anymore. And this new firefighter, boom, right through the wall. This is Tina's self-punisher, right? Tina's self-punisher starts begging Philip for forgiveness. She, she says that this whole situation was her fault. She's overacting and acting out. And this is all really puzzling, confusing, and intense now for Philip because he's still feeling the heat of the anger from the feisty part. The feisty part and the self-punisher are both out at the same time. They've both broken through the wall and they're giving very contradictory responses to him. The angry part, the, the feisty part, still really angry, still struggling with him. And at the same time, the self-punisher is crying and sobbing and, and, and apologizing and, and claiming all of the blame. So Philip releases Tina's wrist, pushes her away. He throws a $100 bill on the table. He leaves the restaurant in a hurry. And at that point, everything collapses even further for Tina the whole wall breaks down. Her abandoned exile, her shame bearer, her approval seeker, her charmer part, they all believe that Philip is gone for good, that the engagement is over, that he has abandoned her, that he hates her. And this leads to this criterion of a transient, stress-related, paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms. The wall of Tina's hiding part completely collapses. All the parts are out. There's total chaos, total disorganization. She's sobbing. She's kicking at the table. She's got her head down. Her self-punisher is holding forth that she might just as well kill herself because her life is over, right? There we have the recurrent suicidal behavior, the gestures, the threats, this, this, this sense that I should just kill myself. She, she mutters that under her breath, but loud enough so the busboy who is nearby is wondering what he should do. Yeah. The lady is clearly in need of help. So I'm going to admit that this is a really kind of extreme vignette that I'm offering you, but it's not unheard of. It's really hard to capture Tina's presentation in a single personality, right? Characterized by stable and enduring patterns of perceiving, thinking, feeling, and relating to others. There's very little recollection in Tina in this. Her innermost self is not really available to lead and guide her system. So we didn't really talk about her innermost self because it was just overwhelmed the whole time, which is very common for people that have borderline personality disorder. Many of them have never really been recollected, never really been self-led. It becomes so much clearer what's happening and why when we consider the parts in her system, the needs that those parts are trying to meet, the agendas, the means that they are using to pursue, the means that they're using to, to meet those needs, how parts get locked in polarizations with each other. It's so much easier to think about this in terms of parts and systems, right? So that's what I really wanted to share with you is to tell you a story to try to illustrate what goes on in one kind of example 
in one moment, in one vignette with borderline characteristics and how you can understand that through an IFS lens. There's lots of other ways that this can play out. All right, so let's talk about resources. When I looked for resources around borderline personality dynamics and IFS, there's very little. There is an excellent article by Richard Swartz, that 2013 Psychotherapy Networker article called Depathologizing the Borderline Client. That is really worth reading, but it doesn't get into a lot of depth like I did today about what it actually looks like, but it's still worth looking at. Now, if you do start Google searching internal family systems and borderline personality, you're going to come across this book by Anita Ann Lambert called Internal Family Systems Therapy Borderline Personality Workbook. Um, there's no publisher listed. I assume she self-published this book. There's a lot of problems with it. Um, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but when I downloaded it in Kindle Unlimited, there were two misspellings in the title on the cover. She misspelled the word therapy and she misspelled the word workbook. So this was not edited professionally at all. There are dozens of references at the end of the book but none of them have anything to do with IFS. There's only a few pages about IFS and almost nothing about understanding, quote, borderline personality, end quote, from an IFS perspective. There's several other therapy approaches are described. The workbook section at the end doesn't mention IFS at all. It's only got a couple of questions out of the dozens of questions there that address parts. So it's really a disappointment. I cannot recommend it. It's also gotten some pretty negative reviews. Uh, so um, there's clearly a lot more that needs to be done in terms of understanding what conventional diagnostic, uh, what conventional diagnostic systems call borderline personality disorder, how we understand that from an, inter uh, from an internal family systems perspective. This is a start toward that, hopefully. And... We're going to continue this series on understanding borderline personality dynamics in our next episode, episode 128. That will be recorded live on Wednesday evening, December 13th, 2023, from 7.30 to 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. It's called Relating Well with Family Members with Borderline Dynamics. I'm excited to announce that Dr. Jerry Crete will be joining me for that. We had a huge response when he joined me for episode 123 about relating well with family members who have narcissistic personality dynamics. Now we're going to be doing this again, but this time with borderline personality dynamics. So again, Wednesday, December 13, 2023, in the evening, 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Dr. Jerry and I will talk for about 20 minutes about borderline dynamics, and then we will do the Q&A with our live audience. You can go to our landing page, soulsandhearts.com RCC. There's a link there that you can register for that Zoom meeting. We'd love to have you join us. Now, if this episode resonated with you, really about the parts of Tina and how they were reacting, then the Resilient Catholics community might be for you. We've, we have reopened for new applications as of December 1st. We will continue to be open until December 31st for our sixth cohort, which is our St. Francis Xavier cohort. Now, the RCC is all about your human formation to help you better live out the three loves, and the two great commandments. Check us out, soulsandhearts.com slash RCC. 
This is not spiritual formation. We focus on human formation in the RCC. Grace perfects nature. There's so many difficulties that we have in loving that are not primarily spiritual problems. They're not problems of willpower. They are problems of ability or capacity because we're limited by deficits in our human formation. And the RCC is is among very few programs that can help you with your human formation grounded in a Catholic understanding of the human person. We focus on systems. We focus on parts. We have three overarching goals in the RCC. The first one, tolerating being loved first. That is being loved by God, by others, by your innermost self, which means being known and also being open to the vulnerability that that takes. The second one is embracing your identity as a beloved little son or daughter of God, your father, and Mary, your mother, your primary parents in all of your parts. Right? That that identity extends to all of your parts. And then responding to God, your neighbor, and yourself by reflecting that love back. Responding in love. So check us out, soulsandhearts.com slash RCC. There's lots of videos there. There's information. And as part of your application process to the RCC, you, you get the Parts Finder Pro. And the Parts Finder Pro is a set of 16 measures that helps identify your parts, your XLs, your managers, your firefighters. On that report, you'll, you'll read about 10 to 15 of your parts. And not only that, we discuss the relationships among your parts, how those parts interact. There's nothing out there that's like it. There's nothing out there that's like the Parts Finder Pro. And that's only available right now to those that apply to the resilient Catholics community. We're going to try to break that out for um, for other ways of making that available next year in 2024. But right now, that's a huge benefit of applying to the resilient Catholics community. We had 210 people on our interest list. We have special companies just for priests, special companies just for seminarians, special companies for therapists and coaches and spiritual directors. Find out more about that. My conversation hours are every Tuesday and Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can reach me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594. Feel free to call me if you have questions about the RCC, the Resilient Catholic Community, or if you want to talk about any of the topics in my weekly reflections that go out by email on Wednesdays or in these Interior Integration for Catholics podcasts. It's not therapy. I can't do therapy or clinical consultations with you, but we certainly can have conversations together. Oh, and one more thing. Please keep me in your prayers. Please pray for me. Please pray for souls and hearts. Please pray for the resilient Catholics community. Any good that we bring to the world is fueled by prayer. I'm praying for all of you listeners of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast, for all those that are applying to the RCC, for all all of our current RCC members, for all of you who are affiliated in one way or another with Souls and Hearts. And with that, we'll go ahead with our invocations. Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots, pray for us, St. John the Baptist, pray for us. And now for the attributions for the different sound effects that we use today in this episode, I, 
obtained all of these from an excellent website, freesound.org. That was the source for all of them. The first one, The Child Saying Help, was from Brandon Reese, and it was used under CC 4.0, the Attribution License, Creative Commons. The next one was The Child Saying Help Me, also by Brandon Reese. You can get that at freesound.org. Then The Woman Crying Softly was by Legend569, also at freesound.org, 4.0 attribution license. The Sobbing of the Other Woman was by Sitzbrow, S-I-T-Z-B-R-A-U. It was also used under the 4.0 attribution license. The Marching Sound was by Web Films UK, 4.0 attribution license. And The Dungeon Gates Closing by CG Effects, CG Effects, C-G-E-F-F-E-X, also the 4.0 attribution license. So thank you to Freesound and thank you to all of those artists who made their sound effects available under the Creative Commons licenses.